Now shall I tell of things that change, new being out of old. Since you, O gods, created mutable arts and gifts, give me the voice to tell the shifting story of the world. Every couple of weeks, one of us, my wife or myself, will buy a lottery ticket. We understand the odds. We get it that from one perspective, we're just throwing money away. Fine, that's a valid point. But that doesn't stop us. We still buy a lottery ticket from time to time. We buy a lottery ticket for two reasons. First, you never know. I realize that makes us rubes, but again, what if we turn out to be lucky rubes? The second reason is actually the real reason. We buy a lottery ticket because it gives us the fantasy, the one where we can say, what would you buy first? And would you quit your job right away or give notice? Sure, we're rubes, but that little 15-minute fantasy is worth a couple of bucks every few weeks. It's fun to think about, fun to share together for a few minutes. And besides, you never know. I actually know someone who won the lottery. They won millions of dollars, and it completely transformed their lives. People talk about the lottery curse, people who suddenly have no more money troubles, and yet their whole world falls apart. They lose their family and their friends. They don't know who to trust anymore. Their marriage disintegrates. They burn through their winnings, and the next thing you know, they're back to zero, and they have nothing to show for it all except heartache selfishness, and failure. But in this case, in the case of my friends, they took all their money and set up a foundation to help unadopted kids find families. Needless to say, they were good people to start with. I wonder sometimes what it's like to be that rich. How does it change you? I've actually met a billionaire. I can't say I know him, but I did spend an hour or two talking to him about a project for work. He was a billionaire, but he'd been born into it. He was raised in it. He didn't work for it himself. It was interesting to be in the room with someone who maybe never felt the fear that haunts the rest of us all the time. That flip side of the lottery fantasy, the shadow side, the fear... What if? What if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if the business fails? What if we lose the house? What if? What if? What if? There's no denying that money changes things. It changes how you live. It changes how you view everything. 
I know people for whom money is a means to an end. They only want it because of what it will enable them to do or buy. Others I know, money for them is a status. It's a measurement of self. It's a yardstick. The more they have, the more they can accept their own value as a person. Money for these people is a metric. Perhaps the metric for their entire lives. Now, like I suspect a lot of people, I spend a small but intense amount of time every day thinking about money. How much I have? How much I have left? Is it enough? How much do I need? But I gotta admit it, I want more than just what I need. I want just enough to silence the what-ifs in my mind that plague me. They're always whispering there. What if? I would love to wipe away all of that worry, and I don't think I'm the only one. These aren't greedy or far-fetched desires. They're pretty commonplace. And they're not too much, really, if you think about it. All we want is just enough. That's all we need. Just enough. But what about the people who are wealthy enough that they never think of what it means to go without? What is it about these people who strive after wealth for wealth's sake, who need that metric in their life, even past the point when they already have what they need, more than they need, and even more than they could ever use in a lifetime? The people for whom just enough is not enough. What about them? There was a king named Midas. Actually, there were three kings named Midas. One of them ruled the city kingdom of Phrygia sometime in the second millennium BC. Another Midas, according to history, was a member of the royal house of Phrygia sometime in the fifth century BC. And still, there was another Midas who ruled Phrygia in the late 18th century. Apparently, Midas was a family name in Phrygia. These three kings were rich and powerful rulers, each in their own right. But it's the most ancient of these, the first Midas. Let's call him the Proto-Midas. He's the one that you know from the old story. The stories about Midas and his life are varied and tangled. In some stories, he begins life as a poor peasant and was named king by an oracle. Other stories say he was adopted by the king, uh, Gordia, he of the Gordian knot fame, and when that king died, his adopted son, Midas, became king. Other stories say that Midas was actually the biological son of King Gordia, and that his mother was Sibyl, a goddess whom the Romans called the Great Mother. She was a synthesis of Gaia, Rhea, and Demeter the goddess of nature and the earth. But who was he? Who was Midas? Farmer, peasant, adopted or rightful heir, human or demigod? 
Did he come from humble beginnings, or was he the heir apparent? No one knows. But regardless, he was a king. However he might have arrived on the throne, he ruled Phrygia after his father died, making Phrygia one of the most significant city kingdoms in antiquity. And to be the king of Phrygia meant that Midas had wealth beyond all measure. From his rumored humble origins, he sat on the golden throne of a golden kingdom. And yet, he still wanted more. But that's not where the story begins. The story of Midas actually begins much earlier, just after the death of Orpheus. You might recall from our previous episode, Bacchus was so enraged by the transgressions of his followers, the Maenads, that he transformed them into trees as a punishment for the murder of Orpheus. And after meeting out this punishment, Bacchus left his usual haunts and fields for the vineyards of Mount Tomalus. These vineyards were located on the banks of a river called Pactolus. This river is mildly significant later. Now, Bacchus was accompanied by his retinue, his throng of satyrs and bacantes, and also along for the journey was his old tutor and foster father, a satyr named Silenius. It's said that Silenius, when inebriated, was possessed by a powerful gift of prophecy, and I think it's safe to assume that as he spent much if not all of his time with the god of wine, that old goat was likely inebriated much of his time. So, he probably prophesied quite a lot. The idea of an intoxicating substance producing mystical effects or powers is a common theme in the ancient world. Wine, in particular, as I understand it, was a highly valued substance by the Greeks and Romans in this regard. It's my understanding that wine was seen as sacred and holy because it is the only naturally occurring intoxicant. I don't know if this is actually true, it's just what I heard on NPR a few years back, but nevertheless, Silenius could certainly tie one on and lay down the prophecy, in vino veritas, and vice versa. So, passing through Phrygia on one of their, well, bacchanals, the traveling party that surrounded Bacchus everywhere he went left Silenius behind. Now, some say he wandered into the Phrygian palace gardens, and staggering from age and inebriation, Silenius passed out there among the trees and roses. Others say he was captured and arrested and brought before the king for punishment for his trespass. However, Midas told his guards to stand down. See, he recognized the old satyr. He knew him from his early days when the two of them had been students of Orpheus. Small world. To honor his friend and classmate, so one story goes, Midas decided to throw a ten-day feast and festival in honor of Silenius. So one story goes. Other authors suggest that Midas, perhaps recalling how an oracle had guided the path of his life early on, those stories suggest that perhaps the only reason Midas threw this party was to keep Silenius drunk, 
so Midas could profit from whatever prophecy or knowledge the satyr might have to offer. Either way, the drunken feast lasted for ten days and ten nights, and when it was over, Midas returned Silenius to where Bacchus and his worshippers were staying. Bacchus was delighted to have his follower and foster father return to him, and in thanks for the king's kindness, the god offered Midas anything he wanted. Now, let's stop for a bit. Let's think about this. Why would Bacchus be so magnanimous with Midas? It wasn't as if the god had been searching high and low for the old drunken satyr. Presumably this wasn't the first time that Silenius had gotten a skinful and wandered off either. So why this grand gesture from Bacchus? Well, I think the answer might be found in one of the very first myths that we ever talked about on this show. In fact, it's from the first episode. You remember the story of Baucis and Philemon, the old couple who took in the gods Zeus and Hermes who were traveling in disguise and gave them dinner and a place to rest. And in return for their hospitality, the gods offered to give the old couple whatever their hearts desired. The connecting thread here, of course, with Midas, is the concept of hospitality. We've talked about this before. Hospitality was not merely a cultural politeness back in ancient times. Hospitality was one of the great virtues of the ancient world. The Greek word for it was xenia, meaning guest friendship, and there was no greater act of kindness than to show hospitality to a stranger. And no way more likely to invite the anger of the gods than to turn away a stranger from your door or treat them cruelly. Unlike the younger gods who came into vogue later, the gods of Greece were not arbiters of morality or divine judges of humanity. They tended to stay out of human affairs unless events in the mortal world intersected with their own. But there were a few ways to get their attention and earn their wrath. One of them was to violate the sanctity of Xenia, to betray the trust of a stranger on your doorstep. Such a betrayal of hospitality was, and some would say still is, a sin. And not just to the Greeks and Romans, but to the Jews and Christians and Muslims as well. The concept of Xenia wasn't just a Greco-Roman philosophy. These same values were appropriated by those later belief systems and incorporated into their own. There is an underlying idea in all of this that the showing of hospitality to a stranger is the same as showing hospitality to a god. In the case of Balsas and Philemon, this was quite literally the case. To put it a different way, if you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And then in the book of Exodus, it's written, You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress them, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Some translations substitute the word foreigner for stranger. Now, I would love to digress into the current situation here in America. 
with how immigrants and asylum seekers are being treated by my increasingly authoritarian and nationalistic government. But that's a long and winding path away from our topic, and I don't want to lose sight of the story of Midas. Suffice it to say that the gods will not look kindly upon the institutionalized betrayal of Xenia towards the unfortunate strangers at our door or our borders. The Trump administration and others will have much to answer for, and one only hopes that the gods act soon. Trump, a cheap and hollow ruler obsessed with gold. Perhaps it's a little on topic after all. Let's get back to Midas. So let's assume that Bacchus rewards Midas for the hospitality that he showed Silenius. What do you get the man who has everything? Whatever he wants. Bacchus gave Midas the greatest and most terrible gift of all, whatever he desired most. It's not a gift for the unwise. Unlike Balsas and Philemon, Midas asks for what the poet Ovid called a gratifying yet useless gift, one that Midas was destined to make evil of. See, Midas could have asked for anything. He could have asked for prosperity for his people. He could have asked for a thousand years of peace for his kingdom. He could have asked for anything. Eternal love, immortality, wisdom, you name it. Now, what he wants is gold. But why? Why gold in particular? I mean, obviously, we know why gold, but on a meta level, why gold? Gold is an interesting substance. It's an interesting element, both physically and metaphysically. At a chemical level, as I understand it, gold has some unique characteristics. Gold's reactions with other elements are largely limited. It won't tarnish like other metals. It doesn't decay. And as a result, perhaps, this is why gold was seen in the ancient world as incorruptible. It symbolized, among other things, purity. And yet we know even the purest of the pure is not always durable over time, so gold is also softer than most other metals. Gold is so soft that its uses are pretty limited. Basically, gold is only good for jewelry, decoration, or ornamentation. And there's no denying that gold has a certain color that's somewhat unique. Ancient people associated gold with the sun, the source of all light and life. Across many cultures, most notably the Egyptians, gold attained near-sacred status, and they used it to adorn their gods and their dead, as well as their pharaohs, who often ended up being both, eventually. In Greece, spells and charms were sometimes inscribed on tablets or sheets of gold. Now, I did a fair amount of research, and as near as I can tell, no one is quite certain of where or when gold became valuable, or really why it was seen as valuable. 
Certainly, scarcity counts for some of it, but the concept of value has to already exist before you can recognize scarcity as a factor. You don't know gold is gold until you know gold is rare. So, somehow, gold becomes the standard measurement for wealth all around the world. And the truth is, no matter how or where or why, the idea of a random metal having any kind of intrinsic value is pretty much hypothetical or imaginary. It's a construct of our minds, of our society, and there's no real-world, practical rationale for it. Gold is only gold because we say so. It only has value because we all tend to agree that it does. You might as well say that, I don't know, blue rocks have intrinsic value. Oh wait, we do that too. Gold only has value because we give it value. It's a lie agreed upon by all, much like the concept of money in general. And yet somehow our culture, our society, our entire world is founded upon this lie. And it has been for a very long time, for all of recorded history, in fact. And... Some believe that to remove this lie is to doom society back to the Dark Ages, to anarchy and chaos. They believe that without a concept of value to drive the motivations of our society, our society will fall apart. People will stop working. Our entire system, our economies, our governments, they're all built on this idea, this fantasy. And if you remove it, it'll all fall into ruin. Now, it's worth noting that the people who usually believe this are also usually fairly rich, for what it's worth. So, back to the story. The actual request that Midas made to the god is somewhat unclear to me. This is one of those times when I wish I were smarter and knew Latin or Greek. The poet Ovid calls Midas's wish a gratifying yet useless gift and says that Midas was destined to make evil use of it. In my preferred translation of Ovid, the exact phrasing of Midas's wish, what he actually asks for, is grant that whatever my body touches will turn to gold. I mean, if you're looking for the source of the problem, it's right there in the phrasing. To quote a respected philosopher of the 20th century, pronoun trouble. Other versions of the myth that I've read say that Midas asked that whatever I touch or whatever I put my hand to would be turned to gold. Now, those are a little better, but also more vague, and it's easy to see how they could be misinterpreted. But this is a god we're talking about. This is Bacchus. The idea that he would take the request from Midas to literally seems unlikely. Unless, unless, it was some sort of trick. Like the twist at the end of those stories about getting a wish granted by a genie. You get what you ask for, but you don't get what you wanted. But why would Bacchus do that? especially if he's trying to show gratitude to Midas for his hospitality. Maybe, maybe Bacchus was punishing Midas 
for exploiting his servants' prophetic gifts. Maybe Midas did hold that big party to get Silenius to spill the beans about the future, and maybe Bacchus was angry because his friend had been ill-used. That's just me interpolating from different elements across different versions of the story, so who knows? There might be some truth in it. Ovid does say that Bacchus knew Midas had not chosen well, and Bacchus was grieved that the king had not chosen better. Midas's wish, for that's what it was, a wish, is called a gratifying, harmful gift. What's so harmful about being able to turn anything into gold? Think of the possibilities. Well, we don't have to, thanks to Ovid. You know the story, I'm sure. With his newfound gift, Midas goes from one thing to another, touching them and turning them to gold. He snaps a twig off of an oak tree in his garden, and he feels the weight of it in his hands increase, and he watches as its color changes to a valuable gleam. He takes up a rock, solid gold. He picks up a clod of earth, and there's a lump of gold right there in his hand. He passes his hand over the ripe wheat stalks, ready for harvest, and now they're gold. When he takes an apple from a tree, he hefts it in his hands and sees the golden sunlight reflected in its now yellow, shining skin, like something stolen from the garden of the Hesperides. Except it's not stolen. It's his. Twig and stone, field and orchard, it's all his. And he can make as much of it as he wants. A golden harvest, never-ending. As his servants called him into dinner, Midas passed his hands over the columns of his palace, already regal and fine, but now magnified by the glint of gold, like the palace of Helios. Inside, the table was ready with heaps of roasted meats and fresh-baked breads, the wholesome gifts of Demeter, and all of it made his stomach rumble at the sight. He'd spent all day working in his garden, and he'd forgotten the basic human necessities. And, of course, because you know the story, you know what happens. When he reaches for a loaf of bread, it hardens, suddenly too heavy to lift. The same true for those delicious meats, now inedible. And when he takes up a goblet of wine, the vintage is molten metal. His gift was no gift. It was a curse, and a self-inflicted one. See him there, Midas, sitting in his chair, hardly noticing that it's become a golden throne, his eyes fixed on the feast before him, its value beyond measure now, and yet untouchable. He doesn't just turn anything into gold. He turns everything into gold. You know how the story goes. Ovid keeps his version of it short and sweet. It's uncomplicated. Midas finds himself trapped by his gift, and he prays for deliverance. But there's another version of the story. This is the one that most people know. It's not Ovid, it's actually Nathaniel Hawthorne. Hawthorne's retelling of the story of Midas is 
may be the best-known version, due in no small part, I suspect, to the level of tragedy and pathos he introduces into what is a fairly simple fable. In Hawthorne's retelling, when King Midas discovered his new power, he had to field-test the gift out in his garden, going from bush to bush and turning all of the roses to gold. When he goes in to eat breakfast, he hears his daughter weeping in the garden. She had gone to gather flowers for him, but what do you think happened? Such a misfortune. All the beautiful roses that had smelled so sweetly and had so many lovely blushes now are all blighted and spoiled. They have grown quite yellow and no longer have any fragrance. What can have been the matter with them? She wept there, and her father took her into breakfast with him. And, as in the story of Ovid, Midas could eat nothing, for it all turned to gold at his touch. As Hawthorne says, so great was his hunger and the perplexity of the situation that he groaned loud and very grievously, too. His pretty marigold could endure it no longer. She sat a moment gazing at her father and trying with all her little heart to find out what was the matter with him. Then, with a sweet and sorrowful impulse to comfort him, she leapt from her chair and ran to Midas, throwing her arms affectionately about his knees. He bent down and kissed her. He felt that his daughter's love was worth a thousand times more than this golden touch. My precious, precious Marigold, said he, but his daughter made no answer. Imagine it. The horror of it. Imagine seeing your curse pass down to your own daughter, feeling the weight of her increase around your legs, her sudden posture arrested, the warmth and breath of her gone. It's horrible. When my son was very young, he's 25, almost 26 now, but when he was three or four years old, when we were out driving in the car to keep him entertained, I would tell him stories. And I remember telling him this story. And when we reached this part, the part where the little girl turned to gold, my son started to cry. He said, I think some stories are too sad to tell. I told him, as best I could, that stories have a shape, and that sometimes you need something sad in order to appreciate the happy ending. He was unconvinced, so I told him the rest of the story of Midas as quick as I could so that he'd believe me. I'm not sure if he did or not. Because... That's the beauty of Nathaniel Hawthorne's version. He balances the tragedy and pathos of the golden daughter with a happy ending, and one that diverges significantly from what Ovid wrote originally. In Hawthorne's version, the king is told to go and bathe in a nearby river and bring back water from the river to sprinkle over anything he wants to restore to its former state, to return it to as it was before it became gold. Midas follows the instructions and, after a dunking and some frantic sprinkling, 
all is restored. He was conscious, Hawthorne writes, of a change within himself after bathing. A cold, hard, and heavy weight seemed to have gone out of his bosom. No doubt his heart had been gradually losing its human substance and transforming itself into insensible metal, but now has softened back to flesh. And once the king is restored by bathing in the river, he returns home and sprinkles water over everything he wants to restore, starting with his daughter. Hawthorne writes, His daughter is restored. Her father did not think it necessary to tell his beloved child how very foolish he had been, but contented himself with saying how much wiser he had grown. And together, they restore the roses in the garden, watering them with the blessed water from the river. It's a good ending, a nice resolution. Even my son was satisfied. But I have to say, underlying all of Hawthorne's words, I catch a whiff of alchemy. That slow transformation that Midas felt within himself, as though his heart were turning to gold right there in his chest. So I dug a little deeper, and I wasn't surprised to find that many of Hawthorne's other writings deal with alchemy and were influenced by its workings. Now, alchemy is, by one definition, the precursor to modern science. It's a hybrid of science and magic. Before science gained a foothold and magic failed, we had alchemy. On one level, alchemy was the pursuit of turning base metals like lead into gold. On a purely naturalistic level, this is what alchemists purportedly were trying to accomplish with their experiments and magical workings. But there's another view of alchemy which sees the quest for gold to be not actual, but instead metaphysical. That is, the quest of the alchemist for gold is a quest for the higher, purest self, the quest for the soul perhaps, or your higher self, or even godhood. In this view, all of the alchemical texts, with all their elements and substances and instructions, were not meant to be taken literally, but instead, some believe they are symbolic, describing processes and objects not in the physical world, but ones from the metaphysical world which is to say, they're allegories, not necessarily recipes. Looking through that lens, the story of Midas, as told by Nathaniel Hawthorne, is perhaps an alchemical parable, a warning to the novice not to pursue the path of alchemy lest they lose everything. The pursuit of gold whether material or immaterial, seems to be one of the driving forces of our species and has for as long as we've been around. And the story of Midas represents a distillation of that pursuit, of that obsession. Fortunately, his story, and maybe our own, ends well, at least somewhat well, at least according to Hawthorne where everything is restored and Midas is reunited with his daughter, but 
By comparison, the overriding theme of Ovid is not necessarily one of reunion. No, for Ovid, the connective thread that runs through all of his stories is change. Metamorphoses. Now shall we tell of things that change. New being out of old. It could very well be an alchemist's mantra. In Ovid, there is no daughter. The lesson is sharper and cuts deeper into the heart of the king. His wealth, his power, his ability to generate it has become a prison, a death sentence. And faced with this fate, Midas prays. Father Bacchus, show your face. Though I have sinned, I beg you, grant me mercy. Save me from this ruinous extravagance. The gods are gentle, Ovid tells us, and Bacchus heard the king's confession and his plea. Bacchus sent Midas to a nearby stream near Sardis and told him to plunge into the fountain to purge himself. And the king did so. As Ovid wrote, the stream was colored by the force of gold as it exchanged his body from the river, and even now the seed of that old boon was taken up by the surrounding field, imparting a hardness and golden color that still shows the influence of Midas's touch. The name of this river in ancient times was called Pactolus. I told you it would be important. The river Pactolus was known for its rich deposits of electrum, which was an ancient gold alloy. The river was so rich with it that the entire ancient state of Lydia based its entire economy on it. And it's worth noting that many historians believe Lydia was where the first gold coins were minted, sometime in the 7th century BCE. So it might well be, in a way, the source of money itself. This river, this kingdom, is the source of the story of Midas and his restoration. It's the place, perhaps, where gold became more than just another rock. In Lydia, they started making coins. Flat little gold discs that became the foundation for all currency in the world, and a good portion of its joy and misery as well. There's two sides to every coin, even gold ones. The plunging of Midas into the river to purge his sin is a familiar theme in ancient religion. One story that comes to mind is from 2 Kings chapter 5 in the Old Testament. Naaman was a commander in the army of Aram, a country that was located roughly where Syria is today. Naaman was a renowned hero and victorious in battle. However, he was afflicted with leprosy. And through a series of events, the word of his plight reached the ears of the prophet Elisha. And Elisha said, Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger out to say to him, 
Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. So Naaman goes off in a rage, but his servants stop him, saying, If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you to do a little thing, like wash and be cleansed? So Naaman did as he was told, and he went down to the river and dipped himself seven times just as the man of God had told him, and, quote, his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Well, Thus healed, Naaman says, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Well, I can remember as a child hearing the story in church and being confused. Why didn't the prophet just heal the man? The explanation given to me at the time was that it was the faith of the leper which opened him to God's grace and healing. But Wasn't making the trip all the way from Syria, a trip into the territory of a rival country no less, wasn't that an act of faith too? Even at the time, I thought there was something cruel about this. For God to set these little tests of faith as a condition for his blessing or his grace, just to get his followers to prove how much they love him, something an omniscient being should already know, it, it, it seems sadistic, or maybe just insecure. Now, contrast that with Jesus in the New Testament. When he comes into contact with lepers, there's no test. He heals them right there on the spot. There's no condition, no little ritual they have to perform. They're healed. But I digress. The dunking of Midas, and that of the leper Naaman, for that matter, seemed to be precursors, or echoes, depending on how you want to look at it, of the sacrament of baptism. Baptism, of course, being a ritual sprinkling or dunking in water to symbolize the purification of a believer or a new convert in the Christian church. It's a step of faith, an initiation, usually made in public a visual representation of the covenant between the convert and God. It's a public sign to the community of faith at large which says, I have been purified by God and now I am one of you. The original word for baptism in Greek means literally to immerse or sink or dip in water. It can also mean to be in over your head, as in drowning. Now, baptism in that meaning puts me in mind of the story of Noah. The world was literally baptized, purified by all of its evil. Everyone, except for Noah and his family, were drowned by God. And after the baptism, Noah and his family leave the ark and stand there on the shore watching the waters recede, carrying away all of the evil in the world. Much like Naaman, watching the waters of the Jordan carry away his illness, 
or Midas, watching the waters of Pactolus carry away his terrible curse, his gift, his gold. In Hawthorne, Midas returns home to sprinkle his daughter with water, essentially baptizing her as well as freeing her from the prison of his wealth and greed, freeing her from his sin. This calls to mind the stories from the New Testament where whole families would be baptized when one of them had become a follower of Christ. But I remind myself, there is no daughter in Ovid. Does this dunking in the river represent something more than the ritual of baptism? Is it more than just a test of faith? Is it somehow tied to the idea that every element in an alchemical text is a crucial part of the formula to achieve the effects of the experiment? Is the story of Midas a coded set of instructions? A way for an alchemist to deliver himself of the quest for gold? What does the water symbolize if not cleansing? Is this story, as Hawthorne frames it, just another way to show the transmutation from gold to another substance? Is the symbolic cleansing a cleansing of the lust for gold? Is it a cautionary tale to the burgeoning alchemist that they put away the idea of physical wealth in order to focus on spiritual growth and knowledge? What's the code? What's the meaning behind it? And I've always been curious, why do the alchemists hide their meaning? Who knows? In Ovid, King Midas emerges from the river and turns his back on his kingdom. That's the metamorphosis in the story. It's perhaps more significant than the transformation brought about by the Golden Touch, and I'm starting to realize as we go along here that Ovid often hides one metamorphosis, a secret one, a true one, somewhere in the story, in addition to the obvious one. Regardless, Midas is now the one transformed. In some ways, he has been transfigured beyond his material state. Detesting wealth now, he dwells in the woods and forests and worships Pan. That's quite a shift for a king, particularly one who had the golden touch. But in some ways, it kind of makes sense. As I said before, some early versions of this story say that Midas was not born a king, but rather he was just an ordinary peasant, a farm boy from the countryside who found himself suddenly thrust onto the throne by the whims of fate when the oracle selected him to be king. And now, it's no surprise that Midas, having washed himself of all of his evil ambition, it's no surprise that he would return to the wild places, his heathen roots, as it were. Heathen, of course, is a word that was used to describe one who lived out in uncultivated land, one who lived outside the city, 
It's closely related to the term pagan, which means roughly the same thing. And of course, over time, both of these terms were used to describe someone who did not worship the Judeo-Christian God. Sometimes, they're still described that way. There's an underlying idea that somehow the rustic faith of a pagan or a heathen is somehow less sophisticated or less valid than that of a monotheistic Judeo-Christian faith. The words themselves have, over time, become encoded with a prejudice, a religious snobbery even. It's the city mouse and the country mouse, the church mouse and the heathen mouse. Unless, of course, it's a pagan holiday that's been Christianized. But I digress. Nevertheless, Midas is cleansed of his folly, and that so-called gift drifts away on the waters, and with it goes all of his greed. And, in a somewhat surprising turn, the former king now embraces the worship of Pan, the god of nature, the god of the uncultivated wild places. Midas in short, ends up back where he started. It's an interesting dichotomy, this idea that gold, a natural element on its own, is somehow connected to civilization and the corruption of humanity, while the woods and wild places where gold comes from are somehow pure and free from corruption. And yet, gold is a pure element a standard of purity by which all other metals are measured. The corruption, of course, is not intrinsic to the element. It's in how it's perceived by humanity. It's the corrosive and corrupting influence of competition and greed of wanting more and more and more. But far from that now, Midas is free. He has gone back to the wild places from whence he came and left his lust for gold far behind. Yeah, I said whence, and I'm sorry for it. Now, high atop Mount Timulus, Ovid says that Pan was boasting to the gentle nymphs of his skill at fingering the pipes, playing melodies on woven reeds. Let's stop for a second and talk about this mountain. The mountain is named after Timulus, an ancient god who was a son of Ares. My research didn't turn up much about him, but it's my understanding that Timulus was gored by a bull there on the slopes of the mountain, which was then named after him, I think. And in doing so, Timulus became the god of the place. He became his own sacrifice, and, like the mountain that bears his name, he is referred to as oak-clad. Presumably this was from the many oak trees that covered the mountain. And it's clear that over time, Timulus, the god and the mountain, carried a certain amount of weight and authority. So it's there on the mountain that Pan gets a little carried away in his efforts to impress the nymphs, and he throws out a claim that his musical skill exceeds even that of Apollo, the god of music. Now, that's the kind of thing that leads to trouble. 
When a mortal insults the gods, it can be disastrous. But when gods insult each other, it can throw the entire world into chaos. Apollo noticed the insult, and next thing you know, he and Pan are embroiled in a musical contest there on the mountain. It's a confrontation so weighty that the god of the mountain, Timulus himself, was tapped to adjudicate. And along with the nymphs, our friend Midas is there as a spectator. He'd returned to his pagan roots, he'd become a worshiper and a follower of Pan, and he was present when the contest took place, and it's always a dangerous place to be when you find yourself stuck in the middle of a dispute between the gods. Ovid writes this. The ancient judge sat upon his mountain and shook his ears free of the greenery. A wreath of oak leaves bound up his dark hair and acorns dangled from his temples. The mountain god announced that the contest had begun. As challenger, Pan went first, and his barbaric tune, as Ovid calls it, charmed the former king's once golden heart. When Pan had finished his song, the mountain judge turned to face Apollo, lifting his face to the sun. Apollo's golden locks were crowned with laurel, and the god swept the ground with his purple mantle, trimmed with gold as he raised his lyre and laid with precious stones and ivory. Now, it only takes a few strums on the lyre for Timulus to declare Apollo the winner of the contest. All who were there agreed with the mountain god's judgment. Apollo was the winner. All except one. Midas. Midas, said Pan, played the better tune. We don't know why Midas chose Pan over Apollo. It isn't explained in any of the stories that I could find. And it's clear from the context that Midas is wrong. There's no way that Pan can beat Apollo at his own musical game. But yet, Midas says he prefers Pan to Apollo. I think the reason for this might be in the word golden. When describing the scene, Ovid frames Apollo's majesty with imagery of wealth, his golden locks of hair, his purple robe trimmed with gold, his jewel-encrusted lyre. So maybe, maybe Midas's judgment was influenced by how much he detested wealth after his ordeal with the golden touch. Maybe he saw the richness and gold of Apollo and was repulsed by it. Alternatively, maybe as a former student of Orpheus, Midas held a grudge against his teacher's father, Apollo. After all, Apollo was the one who snuffed out Orpheus's life when his son's renown exceeded his own. Or maybe it was a combination of all these things. Who's to say? But regardless of the reason, this rebuke, from Midas, irritated Apollo. It irritated him so much 
that someone might hear his music and not embrace it as the best? So, offended by the dull ears of Midas, Apollo transformed the man. Well, not the man. He transformed his ears. Apollo, in essence, made the outward man resemble the inward man, which was a common punishment when mortals displeased the gods. More specifically, on top of his head, Midas found that his ears had been stretched out and were stuffed with shaggy gray hair, and they wobbled back and forth. He'd been given the ears of a donkey. For his foolishness, Apollo didn't just call Midas a jackass. He made it a reality. As you might imagine, Midas wasn't particularly pleased with his new hairdo. He tried to hide his ears under a turban for a while, which was all well and good, but one day Midas went to the barber, and the barber saw what Midas had hidden under his headgear. Now, Midas had sworn the barber to secrecy, but the barber was unable to keep the secret to himself. Fortunately, he didn't tell anyone. He just went off and whispered the secret into a hole, shoveling the dirt on top of it to keep it hidden forever. But the secret of Midas's ears was too strong to be hidden. And so, according to the story, on that spot where the hole had been, a grove of whispering reeds sprung up, and when stoked by the south wind, they sang their secret story of Midas's ears and shame to whoever was listening. And after that, Ovid and we are done with Midas. The metamorphosis has taken place. The moral of the story has been revealed. Or has it? It's a, I keep going back to the same question. What did Midas do wrong? This time, they're on the mountain. He expressed a preference of one god over another, and he was punished for it. But that's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, really. And there was no baptism that could deliver him this time. Pan certainly didn't lend a hand in the same way that Bacchus had. And it's interesting because the story there, it, it takes a turn at the end. As with many of the old stories, this one in particular feels more like a parable than a myth. At least there at the end. The barber going off to whisper his secret into a hole, which then spreads out into the surrounding vegetation. That's almost like something out of Aesop. It's practically a fairy tale. In a way, it recalls Midas going and bathing in the river and all of that evil gold washing out of him into the surrounding countryside. But who's to say? Growing up, I was always told that myth was a way of humanities explaining the world around them. For instance, we asked the question, why is this particular river so enriched with electrum and gold? Well, let me tell you about Midas. Hey, Mom, why do those reeds over there make such an odd noise in the wind? Well, let me tell you about Midas. It's just people telling stories to their children to answer their questions, to explain the world around them. 
At least, that's what I was told growing up, and I get it. It's a valid perspective. We use myth in order to bring order and understanding to the chaotic and baffling world that we're in. But not only myth. I think an argument can be made that this is also how religion sometimes operates. And anyone who has spent as much time as I have in Sunday school might agree with me. But regardless, that doesn't explain every myth, religious or otherwise. Because there are plenty of them where you can't reverse engineer some kind of cause or natural occurrence that uh, uh, inspired a parable. I digress yet again. So, more to the point, and this is one of the reasons why I picked this myth in particular to look at, I'm not really a fan of gold, despite how much I think about it. I don't wear gold jewelry. I much prefer silver. I have no reason why. I just do. It's my aesthetic. And yet, I do think a fair amount about gold, or at least I think about money, just like the rest of us. How much do I have? How much can I get? How much do I need? How much do I want? I know I'm not alone. That's a lot of thought and energy being devoted towards basically some rocks you dig up out of the ground. As Peter Aykroyd writes in his novel Hawksmoor, it's all just shining dirt. Religion and faith have always had an interesting relationship with wealth. Despite what some contemporary ministers might tell their congregations, Jesus was no fan of gold or of rich people. It's a thread that runs throughout his ministry. Despite what modern proponents of the so-called prosperity gospel or its current incarnations might want to assert, there's no escaping it. Jesus despised wealth. At least, He despised what it did to people, what it did to their hearts. He was conscious of a change within himself after bathing. A cold, hard, and heavy weight seemed to have gone out of his bosom. No doubt his heart had been gradually losing its human substance and transforming itself into insensible metal, but now has softened back to flesh. In the Bible, there's a story where a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks how he might serve him. And Jesus tells him to sell everything he owns, give all the money to the poor, and join his disciples. And the rich young ruler goes away, sorrowfully. Presumably, he kept his gold, and at the very least, maybe he was just hoping for a good tax break for a donation. But there's this fantastic little turn of phrase where Jesus says that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for the rich man to enter heaven. On a side note, as I understand it, this was not a literal statement. Jesus wasn't talking about real camels and real needles. It was something of a joke or a pun in those days. See, in those days, the eye of the needle referred to the main gate leading into the city of Jerusalem. And the gate 
had been constructed with a very low archway so that invaders would find it difficult to ride through without dismounting. The only way for a mount, a camel, uh, a fairly tall animal, to pass through this archway, you had to make them bow, to bring them down and move them forward on their knees. So, Jesus' metaphor, as I understand it, was that it's easier to get a camel to bow its head and kneel than it is to get a rich man to do the same thing. Which is not to say that all wealthy people are incapable of achieving salvation. Not at all. Although, Jesus seems to suggest that money might make it more difficult. Would that we all had such financial challenges to overcome as we strive for our own redemption, but I digress yet again. Gold is gold. It glows like the sun. It was used for the first coins, little yellow solar disks symbolizing the sun above, the giver of warmth and all life. When they made coins of gold, they were minting the sun itself. Every single little disc was an idol, a graven, well, molten image of the God above, of the giver of all life. Gold is pure, like sunlight, but intangible, like sunlight. It is really just an idea that we dug up out of the earth and then... For some reason that no one can quite figure out, we made it the most important thing in our lives. So, the story of Midas, in a way, could be a story about the battle between something in the material world that has achieved an immaterial status and importance, contrasted with the true value of the material world itself. As I said, in alchemical terms, you might say it's about the quest for the higher self, the best of who we are, our golden self, the pure self, and how we might be distracted by the material world on the path to our own enlightenment. There's an irony here with gold, as Apollo's image, representing the fantasy and the materialistic desires at the same time. Whereas Pan, the natural god, is embodied as the realistic, fallible solution. It's the natural forest versus the man-made golden garden. One last digression. Speaking of golden disks, one of my deeply cherished modern mythologies is the story of NASA's Voyager missions. I won't bore you with all the details. Maybe I'll do an episode on it one day, but just to encapsulate. In 1977, NASA launched two long-range unmanned probes out into space. Their mission was to explore our solar system and, if they could make it, explore what lies beyond. On each of the probes, which were known as Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, there was a greeting from the people of Earth. The greeting included a diagram showing Earth's position in the galaxy, along with a library of recordings from Earth. 
recordings of children saying hello in every language, a recording of a woman's heartbeat as she nursed her newborn child, a recording of the brain waves of a human being just as they were falling in love, this wealth of sound and music from all around our world. And all of this was contained on a special golden record. Presumably, any aliens that Voyager encountered would have a decent stereo system to play the record. It's fitting, in a way. It's fitting that it would be a gold disc that we design to carry the message from Earth, to tell the rest of the universe who we are as we sit here in the shadow of Apollo. We send out a golden solar disc bearing music, a golden coin offered as tribute or sacrifice as we seek the spheres of new gods. At the end of the day, gold represents what we seek, what we desire, what we desire of ourself, what we desire of the world. Gold is a symbol of purity, of fidelity. The wedding ring is just another solar disk, after all, one that is unbroken and unending like the love we profess to our new spouse. Flip it on its side, it's a halo. For the alchemists, gold was the purest form of ourselves, our higher, if not highest, self. And gold is how we take control of our reality. Everything about our existence is inexorably intertwined with gold, one way or another. There's a tension about this in religions. In the Old Testament, wealth is often seen as a sign of God's blessing, and yet it is Jesus in the New Testament who says to not build your treasures here on earth, but seek your treasure in heaven, where there are rumored to be streets of gold. When he's gifted with the golden touch, Midas doesn't rush out and show off his gift. He doesn't rush out and make it available to everyone. No, alone in his palace, he hoards it all for himself, like a dragon in a cave. And he's all alone. Echoes of Midas exist all around us today. We are surrounded by rulers who are obsessed with gold. Their skyscraper palaces are gilded with the stuff. Even their toilets are plated with gold. They even dye their skin and their hair gold. And like dragons with a hoard, they want all of it. They brag about it. Though, in truth, they're not much more than vile little reptiles, all toxic fumes and hot air. And yet, for all of that gold, everything they have is remarkably vulgar trashy, and ultimately worthless. A cheap, gilded facade. Because all gold is fool's gold. And anyone who chases after it is nothing more than a jackass with a silly haircut. Starving for gold. Starving 
for validation and worth. Striving after a pathetic, useless gift. The story of Midas is, in some ways, an inversion of the story of Baucis and Philemon. Two poor people turned their back on an offer of divinity. Compared with a man rich beyond imagining, who ultimately shuns material wealth in favor of the natural world. Ultimately, gold has no intrinsic value beyond that which we have invested in it. If there is any value there, it is in its beauty, the unique color that makes it unmistakable among all the other elements. It is the color of the sun. And to worship gold is to worship the sun. And gold, they tell me, may not even be of terrestrial origin. It's my understanding that gold came to earth on meteors long ago, carried on great hunks of galactic dust, delivering a precious cargo from its origin point where it was forged in the hearts of distant stars. Those same stars that Voyager 1 and 2 still seek. Out there in the darkness, they bear their golden disks, carrying all the true wealth and value of our world, our peoples, our cultures, our capacity to love and be loved. There is no escaping gold. We all need it. We spend our lives in pursuit of it, though, from time to time, we might try to wriggle out of its gravitational pull long enough to spend time with our family and friends, to enjoy a meal, to work in our garden or walk through the forest, to reach out and embrace someone that we love. Always hoping that those little moments will be pure, untainted, and untinted by the dull gleam of gold. our show. Thank you very much for listening. I think we're going to get back on a more regular schedule now. Let's pretend this is the start of season two. We'll have a new episode next week, and more episodes are already in the works. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook. Just look for Find Your Gods, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest. There's lots of good stuff out there, and I would love to hear from you. So go to findyourgods.com and send me an email. The invocation at the top of the show is different than usual. Earlier this year, a friend of mine passed away. Her name was Elizabeth, and her voice is one of the voices in the invocation. This episode is for her.
The music in this episode is from the 10,000 Things. It's one of my favorite musical... I don't think you can call them a band. I don't think you can call them a collective. They are just a thing, a force of nature, and I love their work. You can find the 10,000 Things on Bandcamp, Amazon, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your music. But I will say, if you go to Bandcamp right now and look for the 10,000 Things, I think you can download their entire discography for like 10 bucks. And it's wonderful stuff. I highly recommend it. At any rate, as always, this show is the copyright and creation of TM Camp, that's me, and violators will be pursued by the Furies until their entire families are plunged into torment and fire for their transgressions. Insert disclaimer here. All of which is to say thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And may your gods bless you.